Great. So as Charles said, we'll be teaching, or he'll be teaching from the book of Jude. So I'm just going to read that book now for us. So from verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all, all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you would wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Wow, what a reading, eh? I'm sure there's lots of people here who are thinking, I'm glad I'm not preaching today. Fortunately, I have that privilege. Uh, Good morning to you. As I said, I'm Charles. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, basically, in a few weeks, I'm going to be launching our new site in Beckenham, which we're starting in just seven weeks' time. Uh, We're going to get to the passage in a moment, but I just wanted to take this moment just to say, um, reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples, where he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And I'm really pleased that we are part of a church that really believes in sending people to go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the ways we do that here is by launching new sites, of course, and we're doing that in Beckenham. And I'm really pleased and excited and and really looking forward to the opportunity to go into a new area, and I hope and pray that many lives will be transformed uh, by the hope in the gospel. And if you're here and you haven't yet maybe made a decision, maybe you haven't committed yet to coming to Beckenham, but you'd like to know more, then I would love to invite you to Tea and Cakes after this meeting. There's going to be a group of us just meeting upstairs. Uh, You'll be able to meet other people going to Beckenham and ask any questions, find out a bit more. And uh, the cakes are amazing, by the way. So if you want cakes, then that's the place to be. Um, But if you're interested, do come along. I'd love to talk to you and find out a bit more about you. Now, as you've already heard... We were at New Day a couple of weeks ago, and one of my personal favorites, or my personal highlights, was the water fights. Now, it became pretty standard. Every afternoon, we'd gather together and have a water fight because it was so ridiculously hot, right? So one afternoon, we get together, and someone, I'm not going to embarrass them by saying who, but someone came up with the idea of having a leaders versus young people water fight. Bad idea. But basically, at the time, we were all really excited about it. So I got involved. And I saw a perfect opportunity. All the young people were just, you know, standing around in a huddle, in a circle. And I thought, if I get a bucket of water, i get them all drenched in one. Perfect. So I go away. I'm so thrilled with myself at this moment. I get the bucket of water. I run over, huge smile on my face. And bam, drenched them all. It was so good. Until I looked up and I saw that one person standing in the circle was a lady known as Laverne. (laughs) Now, honestly, if you know Laverne, she works in the church office, you all know how things became very uncomfortable for us after that. So Laverne quickly went for revenge. And literally, she gathered all 6,000 people at New Day to come along and to stone me. Honestly. It was incredible. But they did come, and they got me drenched with water. Fair play to Laverne. Um, you see, we are now on speaking terms, okay? So just, just so you know, we are on speaking terms. But the reason why I say that is because what started out as something really fun very quickly became uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And you see, the reason why I say that is because when we come to the Bible, we can be reading the Bible and really enjoying it, loving it, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we're hit with something that makes us feel very uncomfortable, And this is the feeling we get when we read the book of Jude. It starts off all light, and yeah, let's go, let's go. Very quickly, he makes us feel very uncomfortable, and then it picks up again at the end. 
And the temptation for us today, as we read challenging parts of the Bible, is essentially to harden our hearts and to ignore what is being said. And basically, we tend to think, oh, the Bible's not addressing me, it's not speaking to me, and so I'm going to harden my heart. And my hope and prayer all week, really, has been that as we gather together today, every single one of us will have open minds, open hearts to hearing God speak to us through this uncomfortable part of the Bible. So that's my prayer. And to start off this letter, really, Jude introduces himself, and he he kind of introduces himself and who he's writing to. And as you'll see in verse 1, it says that Jude is the author of this letter, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude is another form of the Hebrew name Judah and the Greek form Judas. And it's this Judas who's also mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, as the brother of Jesus and the brother of James, who is writing this letter. Jude began to follow Christ as a disciple after his resurrection. And so that's why he says here that he is a servant of Jesus as opposed to his brother as well. And we don't know what church community he's writing to, as he doesn't say, but his audience is likely to be a a Christian audience with a strong Jewish background because his letter assumes a deep understanding of the Old Testament, as you'll see. But this letter can be applied to all Christians, including us today, and including his initial readers, because he says at the very outset, it's to those who are called, who are loved by God and kept by Jesus Christ. That's us too. Everyone here who professes faith in Jesus. And in verses 3 and 4, he outlines his purpose, his reason for writing. He says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our sovereign and Lord. I don't know whether you've ever been planning something really great, something really exciting, and then all of a sudden, bam, crisis hits and you have to change your plans. That's essentially what's happening in this letter. Jude is desperate to write to us about the salvation we share. The great news of forgiveness of sin, righteousness given to us, our adoption into God's family, out the Holy Spirit, how he empowers and works in us. He wants to write to us about all those things. But instead, crisis has hit, and he's got to change his plan. The crisis hits, and he is feel compelled. He feels compelled to urge the Christians to fight for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why did he feel compelled? Because ungodly people have slipped in amongst the community and they're basically making two false claims. Here's the two false claims. Firstly, that the grace of God gives us license for immorality. They're essentially saying that because God will forgive you and God has forgiven you, that basically means you can do whatever you want. Live as you please, do whatever you like. That's the first false claim. The second false claim is that what they're saying is that Jesus is not the only sovereign and Lord. Essentially what they're saying is that there are other gods who can save you. It's not just about this Jesus guy. Other gods can save you. Other gods can be your Lord and Savior. I can't overstate today how relevant this passage is for us. Because today, don't we hear the same claims? Today, don't we hear people saying, God loves everyone exactly as they are. They don't need to change. Don't we hear people say, You can literally live as you want. No one needs to tell you how to live, especially God. He can't have a claim over your life. 
Don't we hear people saying that? People nowadays say, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, it's okay. And even in the church, we can take the grace of God and think, I'm forgiven, he'll always forgive me, I can do what I want. Even in the church, we can think, I can live as I want Monday to Saturday, but as long as I show up on Sunday, it's all good, it's all okay. And it's wrong, it's false teaching, and it was the same in Jude's day, and it's the same today. And again, these false teachers come and say, Jesus, he isn't the only sovereign Lord. Actually, he's one religious fella amongst many. They're basically saying, there's loads of religions that lead to God. It's not just Jesus. There's there's not only one way to salvation, there's many ways. And again, we have the same false teaching today as in the first century. So what does Jude do about it? What's he going to do about these false teachers that have come into the church? Well, the interesting thing is that he chooses to focus on how the false teachers live their lives, rather than what they taught. Why? Because in the end, how you live reflects what you believe. Let me say that again. How you live reflects what you believe. So to reveal how these teachers live, he starts by giving three Old Testament examples of people who live the same way, and he shows what God did to them. And it essentially is a warning to us and a warning to the false teachers. Here's the three examples. Firstly, he talks about in verse 5, the people that were delivered from Egypt. And he's reminding the people that actually the people were delivered from Egypt, taken out of slavery by God. And as soon as they got into the desert, the wilderness, what happened? They started moaning. They started grumbling. They started worshipping other gods. They started to commit sexually immoral acts. They rebelled against God, and as a rightful judgment upon them, the whole generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt all died in the wilderness. That was their judgment. Okay, you rebel rebel against God? Well, you're going to die in the wilderness. And even Moses, even Moses, their leader, dies in the wilderness. The whole generation dies out, and it's not until the next generation that they go in and inherit the promised land of Canaan. The second example is in verse 6. It talks about rebellious angels, essentially God's messengers. And they sinned, and they weren't exempt from punishment either. The example here is of angels who reject God's authority because they're not happy with their own position. And so what happens? They abandon God, and they'll face the judgment for their rebellion. The third example is of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And again, verse 7 reminds us of how God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their outright wickedness. And God burns down sulfur on them to completely destroy them. Sodom and Gomorrah were known for their sexual immorality and their perversion. And it was so bad, so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed both cities with fire. And in verse 7, it says, They serve as examples as examples of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I told you this sermon will be uncomfortable, right? That's uncomfortable. Jude is saying that through these three examples, God takes sin seriously and will punish sin and punish the ungodly. And the reality is, friends, as I've been kind of meditating on it this week, the reality is that there is eternal fire for those who do not believe, who reject God's authority, and who live in sexual immorality and perversion. 
Jude is saying that these false teachers that have come into the Christian community likewise reject God, reject authority, and are sexually immoral. And the same punishment that will come on that came on Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels and the Israelites will come upon them. And of course, in our day, you know, we don't like to think of God this way, do we? But deep down, if we really, if we really think about it, we know that if God is a God of justice, which he is, then he has to punish those who reject him and live their own way. I'm afraid his letter doesn't get better for a little bit. Um, but I wonder for you, have you ever noticed how the way you live impacts other people around you? I realized this for the very first time when I was nine years old. So at nine years old, I've got a best friend. And my best friend supported Liverpool Football Club. And so what happened? I supported Liverpool Football Club. All right? And that decision has haunted me till today. But uh, as you can tell, it's apparent that I do not have a Scouse accent. And often people will come up to me and say, why do you support Liverpool when you're from Brighton? It doesn't make sense. And time and time again, I have to say to them, oh, basically it's because my best mate when I was nine years old supported Liverpool, so that's why I support Liverpool. It's ridiculous, right? It is utterly ridiculous. But a decision I was influenced to make back then is still impacting me now. And as I said, it hasn't been great for the last 20 years, but finally, Liverpool are looking like a team again, all right? They're going to do it, they're going to do it. But anyway, we can see, we know this, don't we, that other people impact our decisions, impact our actions, and impact who we end up following. In Jude 11, Jude compares these godless people to three more Old Testament people. And we're going to look at those in a moment. And basically, each of those people give us insight into how the false teachers corrupt others and also lead them astray. So in verse 11, he starts off with Cain. Verse 11, woe to them, they've taken the way of Cain. Cain you can find in Genesis 4. And he basically has hatred, greed, and murder in his heart. God ends up rejecting his offering, favors his brother Abel, and what happens? Cain kills Abel. We're then told in Genesis 4 that Cain leaves and builds his own city. The influence of Cain spreads into a whole city. He goes to influence other people. Secondly, Balaam is the next example in verse 11. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam is a pagan prophet in Numbers 22 to 25. I'd encourage you to read it at some point. But his motive was for money. Basically, people would come to him asking for prophecies. And he would charge them for it. Hey, come along. I'll give you a prophecy. You give me money. It's all good. And what ends up happening is that he's asked to go and curse God's people. And under God's leading, he's unable to curse them, only bless them. And so what ends up happening is he leads loads of people into sexual immorality. His negative influence influences others. And finally, an example of Korah in verse 11. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. You can find Korah in number 16. He leads a rebellion amongst, against Moses and Aaron, the leaders of God's people. He's basically got two wingmen, Dathan and a guy called Abiram. And together, these three gather another 250 Israelite men to start a rebellion against Moses. So they go to him, go to Moses and Aaron, who are leaders of the people, and they say this, the whole community is holy, and the Lord is with them. So why do you, Moses and Aaron, set yourselves up above the God's people, the Lord's assembly? Essentially, what they're doing is they're saying, look, everyone's holy in the community, so why are you above everyone else? 
They're challenging their authority, challenging their leadership. So Moses responds by saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather all the people, and we're going to come before the tent of meeting where God dwells. And what's going to happen? The Lord will choose who is holy. A great response, eh? The Lord will choose who is holy. And just as a side note, the interesting thing about Korah and Abiram and Dathan is that these guys were Levites. What that means is they were set apart from the people to work in the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt, and they were to minister to the people. Essentially, they were leaders. They were leaders in the community, and they were rebelling against Moses and Aaron. Often we can think that the people who rebel are on the fringes or on the outside. But this is a lesson to us. Even amongst our own leadership, people can still rebel. And these guys serve as examples of people who are in the, in the core, and yet they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron. So what happened? The next day, they all gathered together, all the people before God, and literally in one day, God strikes. Destroys the 250 men that followed Dathan, Korah, and Abiram, and destroy those three. And in the same day, a further 14,700 people died as a result of the rebellion. God came, judged them for what they were doing. You know, often we emphasize, and rightly so, God's graciousness and mercy. Rightly so. But also, friends, also in Hebrews, it says that he's a consuming fire. He is holy, and he is coming, and will punish the ungodly. He hates sin. Hates it. I've never seen personally what has happened to Korah and his followers before in my lifetime. But what we know from this this passage, this letter, is that Jesus is coming again. And likewise, there will be punishment for the ungodly and those who reject him. And Jude is using these examples to say to us and the false teachers, the godless men and women, that if you live your own way and you reject him and you encourage others to do the same, there will be punishment. Let's pause for a moment. I know it's a sobering message, but let's think about this. How we live directly or indirectly affects the people around us. So are you going to live a godly way? Are you going to live a godless way? And how does that impact the people around you? Jude then encourages the people to remember that these godless people who are essentially after money, sex, and power, these people offer so much but deliver very little. If you see in verses 12 to 13, there are several metaphors. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, splashing waves, wandering stars. These all have in common the fact that they appear to offer something special. They appear to offer something great, but deliver little. No rain from the clouds, no fruit from the trees, no safe passage from the stormy sea, no regular movement of stars across the sky. These people offer so much. They think they offer something that's exciting, that's liberating, that's different. But instead, instead, all they achieve is chaos, darkness, and shame. (laughs) Friends, don't we live in a world as well that offers so much but delivers little? The world says to you, go on, go and gamble your money away. Go and do it. The world says to you, go and have that affair. Go and commit adultery. The the world says to you, go after that pay rise. Go after that promotion at work. That way the world will validate you. You'll be seen as a success. 
Isn't that what the world says? And it's lies. And it's not God's way. You know, I find that we talk a lot about money and sex, but the world also says that you need to have power. You need to be in control. And what does it look like for us to seek power? Well, for me, it looks like this. You know, we, we use clever words to manipulate people. We try to criticize others so that we look better. You know, we, it's about, you know, talking about other people behind their back so other people can disapprove of them as well. It's, it's gossiping. It's trying to do everything we can to climb the ladder of success, even if that means lying or putting others down. And even in the church, using the example of Quora, we as a body can try and usurp authority. We can speak badly about our leaders. We can try and be in charge. And in verse 16, it says, it sums up well, it's constantly fault-finding, boasting about yourself, flattering others for your own advantage. Essentially, it's making yourself out to be king. These things that often we chase after, they can be good in the right context, but when we chase after them like they're gods, just bring chaos. And the reality is, as the passage says, that God is going to come back and judge the ungodly acts that we do. And we can't forget what, how God has treated people in the past and treat him with contempt. So what does Jude say we should do about it? What hope is there? Surely it ends on a high, right? Surely. What hope is there? And uh, this is what he says. He says, if you want to fight for the faith, if you want to contend for the faith, here's three ways to do it. Firstly, look after yourself. Look after yourself. Verse 20 to 21 says this, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternity. So in contrast to these godly people, as godly people, build yourselves up in the faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. A little bit of a personal story. So when I was 13, I became a Christian for the first time. And for a few years after that, I struggled and made some mistakes. I particularly had a hard year when I was 18 years old, I know that some of our young people may experience this as well. But when I was 18 years old, I was essentially living a godless life. Instead of going to church, I was going to the nightclubs. I was literally going, getting drunk, flirting with too many women, all that nonsense, to my shame. And not only that, but I was encouraging people in the church to come with me. Instead of going to the youth group on a Friday night, I was encouraging everyone to go on nightclubs in Brighton on a Friday night. That's the kind of life I lived. It was getting worse and worse. And one summer, to my shame, I basically gathered together 15 of my closest friends. I was like the ringleader. And I was like organizing a summer trip to Benidorm. (laughs) To Benidorm. Now, hear me. There's nothing wrong with going on holiday with your friends. But if you're going to Benidorm, there's something wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Seriously. And I knew it was wrong. I knew my motives were wrong. And one day, the youth leader from my church, he came to see me. And he came along, he looked me in the eye, and he said, What are you doing? What are you doing? Further on in our conversation, he said to me, Why do you want to go to Benidorm? 
And straight away, I knew my motives were wrong and evil. So right there and then, I, I came before God and I repented. Further along in our conversation, he said to me, you used to lead people to church, and now you're leading people to the nightclubs. What's going on? What kind of leader do you want to be? And for me in that moment, literally a line was drawn in the sand. Am I going to live a godly life, or am I going to live a godless life? Am I going to encourage people to follow God, or am I going to encourage people to follow the nightclub scene? And for me, that line being drawn in the sand meant I had to come back to God and repent. And you know what? You'll be pleased to know I didn't go to Benidorm. Okay? I didn't go to Benidorm. I realized that it was more important for me to build myself up in the faith and to keep myself in God's love, to obey his teaching, than go on a sleazy holiday. I lost 300 pounds, 300 pounds that I'd already spent on the holiday. I gave it up. It didn't mean anything to me anymore because I had to do what was right. I had to repent. And for some of us today, it may be another opportunity for you to come before God to say a prayer of repentance. Martin Luther, a great theologian, once said this, when Jesus said repent, he intended for the entire Christian life to be one of daily repentance. It's great to hear of young people coming to faith at New Day, Others making recommitments. But the reality is every single one of us who's a mature Christian knows that in order to carry on in the Christian life, we go back to where we started. We go back to the start. We come before God. We repent and we ask, Lord, help us to follow you. And like I say, today that might be an occasion for some of you here. Secondly, what do we do about these false teachers? Well, Jude says, look out for others. Look at verse 22 to 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. What Jude is essentially saying is that we need to deal with people where they're at. Some people need to be shown mercy. Some people have got questions. That's great. If you're here, that's great. We need to show people mercy who've got questions. Meet with them. Talk to them about the faith. Encourage them along. He says others need to be snatched from the fire. Now, we all know that if our house is burning down, we run. We take all our loved ones, we get out of the house. If you're a parent, you grab your children, you get out of the house because the fire is coming. Jude is saying there are some people on the verge of destruction. They are coming close or in the fire, and they need to be snatched from the fire. Some people have literally got so bad, they've been wrapped up in, a, in, in all sorts. And they need a strong Christian friend to come alongside them to tell them the truth, just like my youth leader did. They need someone to literally snatch them from the fire to save them from what they're going through. Some of us here are on the verge of destruction. And we need others to come alongside and to rescue us. To others, he says, show mercy mixed with fear. Now, it's right that we show grace and show mercy. It's right that we do that, but it's got to be mixed with fear, knowing that one day Jesus is going to return and we'll judge every single one of us because every single one of us has got to give an account for how we live. Mercy and fear. It's hard in our culture, but as believers who want to fight for the faith, we have to do that. And for me, if that means that people come back in line and come and follow Christ, then praise the Lord, eh? 
Praise the Lord if it means that people come back to following him. Finally, he says, look to him. Jude ends on a glorious note. A glorious note. And, you know, if you're reading the letter of Jude as a Christian, you can think, oh man, what's going to happen to me when Jesus returns? Or you start to doubt your own salvation even, perhaps. Doubt the way you're living. But Jude ends on a great note. And he ends essentially where he started. He started in verse 1 by saying, you guys are chosen, you guys are loved, you guys are kept by Christ. And he ends in a similar note, saying, look to him. Look to him because he is the one that will keep you from falling. And it's he who will present you before Jesus when he returns as faultless. Isn't that amazing? I think about my flaws, how broken I am. I know that when Jesus returns, it's going to be him who presents me to him as faultless in his sight. So look to him. Jude would have loved to have written a letter to us about the great salvation that we have in Jesus. But instead, crisis hits, and he is instructing us to fight for the faith whilst we wait for Jesus' return. Fight for the faith. He is essentially saying that God's grace is not a license to do whatever you want. God's grace demands a whole life response. A whole life response. It's not licensed to do whatever you want. In fact, Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to a changed life. How you live reflects what you believe. Today, a line has been drawn in the sand. Will you live a godless way? Or will you live a godly way? That is a question for you. Why don't we stand together? Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you now, acknowledging that you are a holy God and that we are unholy. And we come before you in reverence as broken people. And we ask you, Lord, once again, for forgiveness. We ask you, Lord, that you redeem us. We ask you, Lord, for your righteousness. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to come now, to fill this place, to fill each and every single individual. Help us, Lord, to live for you. Help us to live the life that you require of us. Help us, Lord, to be the people that you've called us to be. May it be all for your glory. I pray now that we would worship you in reverence, acknowledging who you are and who we are before you. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.